1956, a musical comedy debuted that became an American classic, My Fair Lady. It's the story of a young street urchin, an ill-mannered, uncultured little lass named Eliza Doolittle. Eliza is taken off the streets by a British phonetics professor and taught the mores, the speech, the etiquette of the upper class. Professor Higgins instills in her a sense of nobility and dignity. Eventually, Higgins and Eliza fall in love, and the professor marries the graceful product of his creation. The musical, My Fair Lady, illustrates the storyline of the first 14 verses of Ezekiel chapter 16. God takes the people of Jerusalem, once uncouth, rebellious, pagan. He takes them off the street, so to speak, and he refines them. He breathes into these ill-mannered people dignity and beauty. God's Eliza blossoms into a lady, and God takes her as his bride. He lavishes blessing upon her. God and Jerusalem have the makings of a classic love story, except one, except for a happy ending. For when God looked upon his, my fair lady, he couldn't say that she was mine, or that she was fair, or that she was even a lady. The Jews of Jerusalem stopped being a faithful wife, and they became a rebellious whore. The Jews broke their vow and played the harlot. They became a slut, not a lady. And those harsh words are not an overstatement, for this is exactly how Ezekiel 16 describes the Jews. Harry Ironside once wrote, God used the method here as indelicate as it may seem to portray the filthiness of such sin and iniquity as that of which this nation had been guilty. No carefully chosen words or guarded expressions can make wickedness any less repulsive than it really is in the sight of a holy God. In fact, there's no more vivid a description and denouncement of sin in all of the Bible than in Ezekiel chapter 16. If chapters were given ratings, this one would definitely be an R. A rabbi, Eleazar ben Hakranis, wrote in the Jewish Mishnah, that Ezekiel 16 was not to be read or translated into, in the public, in the public realm. And yet God takes a different tactic. He's not into sheltering us. In fact, God wants to shock us with the realities of sin so that we don't repeat the mistakes of His people of old. Well, chapter 16 begins, Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations. And implied here is that she didn't know. You see, sin is like body odor. It's like bad breath. You don't know your own stink. You're usually the last one to know. God wants Jerusalem to know her abominations and say to her, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your birth and your nativity are from the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. Now here God is speaking of the city of Jerusalem, not the nation of Israel or the Hebrews as a whole. You remember Israel had a godly heritage rooted in the faith of its father Abraham. But Jerusalem had been a Canaanite city-state 
controlled in the past by the Amorites and the Hittites. Jerusalem had an evil, idolatrous, pagan pedigree. Verse 4, As for your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut. No one had even bothered to clip the umbilical cord. Nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. But you were thrown out into the open field where you yourself were loathed on the day you were born. Jerusalem was like a newborn deprived of postnatal care. No one even washed the blood and mucus off or rubbed the baby's tender skin with an antiseptic. Newborns were usually wrapped in warm, tight bands of cloth to simulate the mother's womb, the security that they had known for nine months. But not Jerusalem. She never knew swaddling clothes. Jerusalem was an unwanted child, tossed out into the open field by her parents, left there to die. Imagine God speaking what comes next. And when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. God says to her, live. Yes, live. God was for Jerusalem from the very beginning. He was pulling for her survival, even her thriving. Verse 7, I made you thrive like a plant in the field, and you grew, matured, and became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed, your hair grew, but you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed, your time was the time of love. In other words, when she had come of age. So I spread my wing over you. This was the Hebrew equivalent of a marriage proposal. This is how Boaz proposed to Ruth, remember. He took her under his cloak and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, says the Lord God. Evidently, the city of Jerusalem said yes to God's proposal. God and Jerusalem became husband and wife. They entered into a covenant of loyalty and trust. And and God began to bless His bride. Then I washed you in water, yes. I thoroughly washed off your blood, and I anointed you with oil. I clothed you in embroidered cloth. And gave you sandals of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen and covered you with silk. You remember it was those badger skin sandals that didn't wear out for 40 years. They had supernatural attire. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a jewel in your nose. Apparently God approves of nose rings. Earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered clothing. You ate pastry of fine flour, honey, and oil. You were exceedingly beautiful and succeeded to royalty. Your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through my splendor which I bestowed on you, says the Lord God. Under David and Solomon, The nation Israel reached its apex. A golden age saw Jerusalem as a global capital, a temple 
in Jerusalem, Solomon's temple was one of the ancient wonders of the world. During Solomon's reign, representatives from foreign governments came to behold the king's wealth and wisdom. In 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 7, we're told of the queen of Sheba, who said to Solomon, It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe the words until I came and saw it with my own eyes. And indeed, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity exceed the fame of which I heard. This is how all the other nations viewed Israel during their golden age, during the days of Solomon. Queen of Sheba goes on and praises God for blessing His people Israel. But here is where my fair lady ends and when girl gone wild begins. For Eliza becomes consumed with lust. She betrays her vows and she breaks the heart of God. God says in verse 15, But you trusted in your own beauty, played the harlot because of your fame, and poured out your harlotry on everyone passing by who would have it. On a list of the Recording Industry Association of America's top songs from the 20th century, number 34 on the list is a country classic by Hank Williams. It's called Your Cheatin' Heart. Here's a little sample of a great song. Your cheating heart will make you weep. Nobody sings it like Hank Williams. You'll cry and cry and try to sleep. I'm going to put him on the spot. But my dad, you know, he's a big country, West, country music fan. And his favorite singer when I was growing up was Hank Williams. And there were nights when dad would pull out his guitar and his sheet music, and he'd practice playing Your Cheating Heart. You could say, I grew up singing Amazing Grace on Sundays and Your Cheating Heart on Mondays. I mean, what a combination! But that's the contrast that we find in Ezekiel 16. The first 14 verses were all about God's amazing grace. But the rest of this chapter is about Jerusalem's cheating heart. And it was her prosperity and her prominence that helped cause her cheating heart. Verse 15 tells us, You trusted in your own beauty. Because of your fame, you poured out your harlotry. Because of God's benevolence, Jerusalem rose to great heights. And yet she took His grace for granted. She took the credit for it all herself. She figured she didn't need God anymore. You see, success and prosperity can be a blessing, but it can also be a curse. It can go to my head. Pride sets in. I start reading my own press clippings and think that it's all due to my efforts. I forget what God has done and how much I need Him. And this is the attitude that leads to a cheating heart. Dorothy Sole was a German feminist author who rejected the concept of original sin and derided the faith of the great reformers. She once wrote this, 
We do not have to sit around all year singing with Luther. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? No, we are strong. We can accomplish things. The most telling argument against our traditional God is not that He no longer exists or that He has drawn back within Himself, but that we no longer need Him. And this was the attitude of the people of Jerusalem. They didn't deny God as much as they just no longer considered Him necessary. And so they chased after other gods. There was once a Spanish knight who had no food. In fact, he scavengered for his next morsel. But every evening he was seen walking through the town square, picking his teeth with a toothpick as if he had just finished a feast. And this is the picture that Ezekiel paints of Jerusalem. They had denied their need of God. And this is what's happened to our modern world in a nutshell. A little technology has gone to our heads. Since we're able to put a man on the moon, who needs the sun? Yet our families are falling apart. Our city streets are a war zone. Our youth have no morals. Perversions are applauded and protected. Women are exploited. Children are abused. And we don't think we need God? How blind have we become? And yet, this is the attitude that even invades some churches. That rather than glorify God, our prosperity is chalked up to our own genius, or the pattern that we've followed, or the abilities that we've shown. Like the church in Laodicea, you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched and miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You see, when there's pride in the heart, a little success goes to the head, as was the case in Laodicea. And it created a lukewarmness toward God. It eventually produces a cheating heart. Verse 16 tells us, You took some of your garments and adorned multicolored high places for yourself and played the harlot on them. Such things should not happen nor be. As we've mentioned before, God considered idolatry to be the equivalent of spiritual infidelity, literally adultery. Jerusalem's idolatry was to God having multiple lovers. She was betraying her husband, and it broke God's holy heart. Isn't it interesting how many country songs are about cheating hearts? Ever heard the riddle, what happens when you play a country song backwards? The answer, the guy sobers up, he gets rehired at the factory, his dog stops howling, howling, and his wife comes home. Here is a collection of actual lines from country songs that help describe for us a cheating heart. You're out doing what I'm doing here without. Does my ring hurt your finger when you go out at night? Where are you spending your night these days? I was flushed from the bathroom of your heart. (laughs) How about this one? If fingerprints showed up on skin, wonder whose I'd find on you. (laughs) I like this one. You're so cold, I'm turning blue. Loving here, living there, and lying in between. 
There ain't no queen in my king-size bed. (laughs) It's sad to go to a funeral of a good love that has died. (laughs) Or this one. She got the gold mine. I got the shaft. And last but not least, you're a hard dog to keep under the porch. (laughs) These are all songs that God could have sung of the Jews in Jerusalem. They had a cheating heart. Always remember, idolatry isn't a statue. It, It isn't something you sit on the mantle. But it's a state of heart. It happens when I allow other things to crowd God out of His rightful place in my life. Suddenly, He's no longer the primary reason that I'm doing what I'm doing. And this wasn't just a warning of Old Testament prophecies to Israel. The New Testament writers also shared this concern for us. James chapter 4, verse 4 tells us, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or hostility with God? Whatever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And then, of course, the last line in 1 John reads, Keep yourselves from idols. As people betrothed to God, it is our responsibility to remain internally loyal to Him. If we flirt with the world in our hearts, if we pursue its thrills and its lusts, we are betraying our allegiance to God. He he wants to be the love of our lives. Again, He confronts His people. He says, You have also taken your beautiful jewelry from my gold and my silver, which I have given you, and made for yourself male images, and played the harlot with them. You took your embroidered garments and covered them, and you set my oil and my incense before them, also my food, which I gave you, the pastry of fine flour, oil, and honey, which I fed you. You set it before them as sweet incense, and so it was, says the Lord God. You know, there's another country song that God could have sung regarding Jerusalem. The line goes, I bought the shoes that just walked out on me. And that's what God is saying here. They took the gold and the clothes and the oil and the incense and the food that He had given them. And they in turn gave them to idols. Moreover, you took your sons and your daughters whom you bore to me. And these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. And of course, this is a reference to the child sacrifices that were offered up to the ancient idol of Molech. People would place their babies in the idol's molten arms, its glowing hot arms, while the drums of the pagan priests drowned out the baby's screams. Today, Molech has been replaced by the abortion clinics and the deafening drums by the pro-choice rhetoric that tries to drown out their screams. But it is the same sin. Babies are being sacrificed to the gods of career or convenience or hedonism or selfishness or privacy. In the United States, the number is now 58 million and counting. A whole generation of Americans today have been lost to abortion. And God asks, were your acts of harlotry a small matter? that you have slain my children and offered them up to them 
by causing them to pass through the fire? In other words, do you think this is just a trivial matter to me, God says? That I just ignored this? Not hardly. God was very concerned. Verse 22, And in all your abominations and acts of harlotry, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare and struggling in your blood. You don't remember where you've come from, how far I've brought you. Jerusalem could have easily been aborted herself. Now she was doing to others what she had been spared of. Then it was so, after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, says the Lord God, that you also built for yourself a shrine and made a high place for yourself in every street. Now remember the high places. They were these raised platforms that were dedicated to various false gods. The pagans thought the higher you were in elevation, the closer you were to your God. And so idolatry was always practiced on the high places. And here he says that there's a high place on every street corner. You built your high places at the head of every road and made your beauty to be abhorred. You offered yourself to everyone who passed by and multiplied your acts of harlotry. Everywhere you turned in Jerusalem, there was an idol. Every city was dedicated to a different idol. Every street in the city, I mean, was dedicated to a different idol. Idolatry had literally permeated all of Jerusalem. And the imagery in verse 25 gets very graphic. In fact, the New American Standard captures the tone in the Hebrew. It, it, it says, You made your beauty abominable, and you spread your legs to every passerby to multiply your harlotry. They were willing to jump in bed with any new idol that appeared on the scene. They had traded the tried and true God for the idols that were novel and exotic and mysterious. And what about you? What about me? When we're desperate for companionship or when we're bored with this life or when we're strapped for cash or maybe when we're entangled in a problem, we see no way out. Do we wait on the Lord? Do we really reserve our hearts for Him? Or do we run to whatever promises to ease our pain? Are we committed to letting God see us through? Or do we have a cheating heart? Verse 26. You also committed harlotry with the Egyptians, your very fleshly neighbors, and increased your acts of harlotry to provoke me to anger. Behold, therefore, I stretched out my hand against you, diminished your allotment, and gave you up to the will of those who hate you, the daughters of the Philistines, who were ashamed of your lewd behavior. You know, it's pretty bad when the behavior of God's people is so wicked that even the pagans blush and are ashamed. Because of their idolatry, God allowed the Jews to lose land or allotment to the Philistines, their mortal enemies. The Philistines just shook their head, ashamed of what the people of God had become. You also played the harlot with the Assyrians because you were insatiable. Indeed, you played the harlot with them and still were not satisfied. Moreover, you multiplied your acts of harlotry as far as the land of the traitor, Chaldea, and even then you were not satisfied. Don't you get it? That doesn't matter where you look. In this world, if you're trying to satisfy a spiritual need with a physical lust or with a physical pleasure, you'll never satisfy yourself. 
It's insatiable. It's an insatiable quest. You're never fulfilled. This world can never fulfill a person's spiritual needs. Only God can fulfill our needs. We, we were made with a void that's God-shaped, and only He can fill that void in our lives. The rest is like taking a square peg and trying to stick it into a round hole. He says, how degenerate is your heart, says the Lord God, seeing you do all these things, the deeds of a brazen harlot. Jerusalem, you are a spiritual slut. What if someone said of a woman, well, she's been to bed with the guy next door, and the man three doors down, I saw her going in over there the other night, and I saw her come out of the fellow's house down at the end of the cul-de-sac. I saw her there too. Man, you're thinking, this is the neighborhood hoe. She got no respect for herself or for anyone else. This is a home wrecker. And yet this was Jerusalem. She had committed adultery with the gods of Egypt and Assyria and Babylon. She had gone to bed with the gods of her surrounding neighbors. She'd acted like a harlot, but hey, she was worse than even a prostitute. Notice verse 31. You erected your shrine at the head of every road and built your high place in every street. Yet, you were not like a harlot because you scorned payment. Now, obviously, God isn't saying that there's any virtue here in prostitution. There's logic, perhaps, but no virtue. I mean, a woman can become desperate. And in order to survive an excruciating situation, perhaps she sells her body for a price. And yet the behavior of the Jews made no sense at all. Jerusalem was playing the prostitute but not getting paid. Jerusalem was a slut for no good reason. Even if you wanted to empathize, even if you wanted to have pity on her, you couldn't. Ezekiel writes, you are an adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. Men make payment to all harlots, but you make your payments to all your lovers and hired them to come to you from all around for your harlotry. She was a John, not the prostitute. Like a horse in heat, she was driven by illogical lust. You are the opposite of other women in your harlotry because no one solicited you to be a harlot. In that you gave payment, but no payment was given you. Therefore, you are the opposite. I mean, Jerusalem wasn't a regretful spouse who maybe got caught up in a moment of temptation and fell. Or even a working girl. She was just a slut driven by raw lust. Wanting to get in the lap of the latest stranger to town. That's what she was. Reminds me of another country song. You must think my bed's a bus stop the way you come and go. And that's exactly what God thought of the Jews. Verse 35. Now then, O harlot, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your filthiness was poured out and your nakedness uncovered in your harlotry with your lovers and with all your abominable idols, And because of the blood of your children which you gave to them, surely, therefore, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure and all those you loved and all those you hated. And I will gather them from all around against you and will uncover your nakedness to them 
that they may see all your nakedness. And I will judge you as women who break wedlock or shed blood are judged. I will bring blood upon you in fury and jealousy. In other words, Jerusalem had slept around and now she's going to receive the adulterer's punishment. I will also give you into their hand and they shall throw down your shrines and break down your high places. They shall also strip you of your clothes, take your beautiful jewelry and leave you naked and bare. They shall also bring up an assembly against you and they shall stone you with stones and thrust you through with their swords. They shall burn your houses with fire and execute judgments on you in the sight of many women. And I will make you cease playing the harlot, and you shall no longer hire lovers. The penalty for adultery under the law of Moses was death by stoning. And this is the punishment that will befall Jerusalem. She'll be stripped, she'll be shamed, and then she'll be stoned. And this is exactly what happened to Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonian army. In 586 B.C., the city was invaded. The stone walls were thrown down. And the temple and their houses were burned to the ground. God's prophecy was fulfilled. And this is what will one day happen to the whole world. For we live in a world dominated by idols. We have forsaken the true God. There's only a remnant that's remained faithful. We followed after other gods. And Revelation tells us what will happen when this all comes to a head, to a climax, under the Antichrist. He'll require that the world will worship Him and take a mark. And when they do, what will be God's response? In Revelation 16, the seventh bowl of judgment is poured out from heaven. And what happens? A hundred pound hailstones pepper the earth, pound the, pummel the earth. What is God doing? Dropping 100-pound hailstones upon this planet. What is God doing? He's stoning the earth for its idolatry. He's fulfilling the stipulation of the law of Moses. Verse 42. So I will lay to rest my fury towards you, and my jealousy shall depart from you. I will be quiet and be angry no more. Now once sin is punished, and what's right is settled. God no longer harbors a, a grudge. Understand, God does get angry, but, but He doesn't remain angry forever. I mean, God's nature is love and patience, not anger and fury. I mean, when God acts with anger and fury, it's the exception rather than the rule. God, God is a God of love. He does get angry, but He doesn't remain angry. When we repent, His anger ceases. Or when justice is served, His anger ceases. We decide which we want. Verse 43. Because you did not remember the days of your youth, but agitated me with all these things, Surely I will also recompense your deeds on your own head, says the Lord God. And you shall not commit lewdness in addition to all your abominations. Indeed, everyone who quotes Proverbs will use this proverb against you. Like mother, like daughter. You are your mother's daughter. 
loathing husband and child. And you are the sister of your sisters who loathe their husbands and children. Your mother was a Hittite and your father an Amorite. Jerusalem had a family resemblance. I'm sorry. I mean, it was like mother like daughter. But her parents were pagan. They were the Amorites and the Hittites. And her sisters, they were notorious, for she had two. Your elder sister is Samaria, who dwells with her daughters to the north of you. And your younger sister, who dwells to the south of you, is Sodom and her daughters. Her sisters were Samaria and Sodom. Samaria was known for its idolatry. Sodom was known for its immorality. Now, notice here, often people talk about the brotherhood of all men. They were all brothers. They talk about the fatherhood of God. Oh, we're all brothers and sisters, and God is our Father. God is the Father of all of us. As if God is everyone's Father, and we're all brothers in the same family. Not so. Here God makes it clear that Jerusalem was not of His bloodline. Her parents were pagan nations. And her sisters were wicked, evil, idolatrous cities. They weren't related to God. He didn't didn't, uh, embrace being their father. Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees in John 8 verse 44. He said, you are of your father the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. So much for all men being bros and the universal fatherhood of God. No, one is born into God's family only one way, through Jesus Christ. To have God as your father and the church as your family, you've got to be born again. Being born one time doesn't make you part of God's family. You've got to be born again. You have to experience a spiritual birth. Verse 47, you did not walk in your ways nor act according to their abominations, but as if that were too little, you became more corrupt than they in all your ways. Imagine this, God's holy city, Jerusalem, became more corrupt than idolatrous Samaria or immoral Sodom. As I live, says the Lord God, neither your sister Sodom nor her daughters have done as you and your daughters have done. Look, This was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. He destroyed them with fire and brimstone. Usually, Sodom is associated with homosexuality what we think of when we think of Sodom. We even call unnatural sexual practices sodomy. But the sin of Sodom went much deeper than just sexuality. Here Sodom is accused of pride, of selfishness, of idleness, of an unwillingness to help the poor and needy. Apparently, God is not just concerned about sexual perversion. He also cares about social justice. You know, we we Christians, we can be quick to condemn homosexuality while we're guilty of pride and self-centeredness. We too can be guilty of the sins of Sodom. We talk about sexual perversion. 
but we do nothing to help the poor and needy. Who's acting most Sodom-like? Verse 51. Samaria did not commit half of your sins, but you have multiplied your abominations more than they and have justified your sisters by all the abominations which you have done. Compared to Jerusalem, these two sisters, they look great. They, They had done half of what Jerusalem had done. You who judged your sisters bear your own shame also, because the sins which you committed were more abominable than theirs. They are more righteous than you. Wow. Sodom and Samaria were not as guilty as God's holy city, Jerusalem. Yes, be disgraced also and bear your own shame, because you justified your sisters. When I bring back their captives, the captives of Sodom and her daughters, and the captives of Samaria and her daughters, then I will also bring back the captives of your captivity among them, that you may bear your own shame and be disgraced by all that you did when you comforted them. When your sister Sodom and her daughters returned to their former state, and Samaria and her daughters returned to their former state, then you and your daughters will return to your former state. In other words, one day all three sisters will be restored, but it's to Jerusalem's shame that she will need to be one of them. That she was numbered with these three sisters. For your sister Sodom was not a byword in your mouth in the days of your pride, before your wickedness was uncovered. It was like the time of the reproach of the daughters of Syria and all those around her and of the daughters of the Philistines who despise you everywhere. You have paid for your lewdness and your abomination, says the Lord. Even in her pride, Jerusalem never looked down on Sodom. Perhaps she realized she was just as guilty. He says, For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, who despise the oath by breaking the covenant. Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Even though Jerusalem had despised their marriage covenant with God, God would never forsake His promises to them. And God will remember His covenant with the Hebrews. He'll pardon their sin. He'll give them a new heart. They will be His God. I mean, they will be His people, and He will be their God. And then you will remember your ways and be ashamed. I mean, when they repent of their sin, when they receive the new covenant that God has promised them, they'll be ashamed of what they've done. When you received your older and your younger sisters, for I will give them to you for daughters but not because of my covenant with you. And and I think this predicts a political alignment that's yet to occur, that perhaps even in the last days, God will unite these three sisters in an alliance. Samaria, Sodom, and Jerusalem. And I will establish my covenant with you, then you shall know that I am the Lord, and you may may remember and be ashamed, and never open your mouth anymore because of your shame when I provide you an atonement for all you've done, says the Lord. Even after all she had done, God's plan for them was still to provide atonement, forgiveness, to restore the relationship, to make them one again, at one with God. And it's the New Testament that makes atonement. It comes no other way. The New Covenant that makes atonement. It comes no other way. God and sinful men are reconciled by Christ and by Him alone. 
Well, chapter 17 is a parable that relates to the political situation in Jerusalem at the time of Ezekiel. In 597 B.C., the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar had conquered the city of Jerusalem and had taken King Jeconiah back to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar selected a successor, Jeconiah's uncle Zedekiah, and had made Zedekiah take an oath of allegiance to Babylon. You remember Jeremiah talked a lot about this. He said that Nebuchadnezzar was God's instrument of judgment and the Jews could show their repentance to God by surrendering to the Babylonians. He warned Zedekiah that if he resisted the Babylonians, he would be resisting the will of God and it would bring upon him the final destruction of Jerusalem. Well, here Ezekiel echoes Jeremiah in a parable. In the first 10 verses, he tells the story. In the next 11, He gives the interpretation. Verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, pose a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel and say, Thus says the Lord God, A great eagle with large wings and long pinions, full of feathers of various colors, came to Lebanon and took from the cedar the highest branch. Now the great eagle is Babylon. You can check out Daniel 7, Jeremiah 48, Jeremiah 49. The same imagery is there used of Babylon. The large wings are Nebuchadnezzar's army. The feathers of various colors are the banners under which this army marches. The highest branch that's clipped off by the pinions is the Davidic successor, the heir to the throne, which was Jeconiah, King Jeconiah. The pinions of the eagle had clipped off the top branch of Lebanon, or in this case, Israel. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, had dethroned King Jeconiah and had taken him back to Babylon. He cropped off its topmost young twig, that was Jeconiah, and carried it to a land of trade. He set it in a city of merchants. The land of trade, the city of merchants, was Babylon. Then he took some of the seed of the land and planted it in a fertile field. He placed it by abundant waters and set it like a willow tree. Willows grew along the banks of the Euphrates River there in Babylon. And this is where the Jews relocated, where he sowed the Jewish seed. And they remained there in exile for 70 years. And it grew and became a spreading vine of low stature. Its branches turned toward him, but its roots were under it. So it became a vine brought forth branches, and put forth shoots. Again, the vine was a symbol for Israel. Uh, We saw that imagery back in chapter 15. But there was another great eagle with large wings and many feathers. And behold, this vine bent its roots toward him. Notice the vine that was in Babylon bent its roots toward Nebuchadnezzar, but the vine that was still in Jerusalem the Jews that had been left behind, they bent their, that vine bent its roots toward this other great eagle and stretched its branches toward him from the garden terrace where it had been planted that he might water it. The other great eagle was the rival power in Ezekiel's day. You see, there were two superpowers at the time. There was Babylon in the east and then there was Egypt in the west. And instead of being loyal to Babel, as Jeremiah had commanded Jeconiah and Zedekiah and the Jews, 
the vine broke his oath. And Zedekiah reached out toward the Egyptians. It was planted in good soil by many waters to bring forth branches, bear fruit, and become a majestic vine. If Zedekiah had remained loyal to the Babylonians, then the Jews in Jerusalem would have prospered. But because Zedekiah leaned toward this other great eagle and courted the Egyptians and paid protection that, by the way, never came, this vine is going to be uprooted. You see, Zedekiah was destroyed because he never accepted God's verdict on his sin and on the sin of his people. He broke his oath. Instead of remaining loyal to Babylon, he trusted in Egypt, and he inflamed the ire of King Nebuchadnezzar. And thus he came in 586, and he destroyed the city of Jerusalem. In other words, the Jews never surrendered to the judgment and will of God. You see... You can always tell if a person is truly repentant of their sin by how they react to its consequences. I'm going to repeat that. You can always tell if a person is truly repentant of their sin by how they react to its consequences. Do they accept the shame their sin has caused? Are they in agreement with the restitution that's now required? Are they submissive to the rebuilding of trust that maybe is now demanded of them? Or are they just resentful that they got caught and they can't understand why their life has suddenly gotten harder? You can always tell a person if they're truly repentant of their sin by how they react to that sin's consequences. Verse 9. Say, thus says the Lord God, will it thrive? Will he not pull up its roots, cut off its fruit, and leave it to wither? All its spring leaves will wither, and no great power or many people will be needed to pluck it up by its roots. Behold, it is planted. Will it thrive? Will it not utterly wither when the east wind touches it? It will wither in the garden terrace where it grew. The east wind, this big hurricane, will be the Babylonian army. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, and here God begins to interpret the parable, Say now to the rebellious house, do you not know what these things mean? Tell them, indeed, the king of Babylon went to Jerusalem and took its king and princes and led them with him to Babylon. Remember, Ezekiel had been part of this deportation. He was one of the princes of Judah. And he took the king's offspring, made a covenant with him, and put him under oath. He also took away the mighty of the land that the kingdom might be brought low and not lift itself up, and that by keeping his covenant it might stand. But he rebelled, and this is Zedekiah. He rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt that they might give him horses and many people. Will he prosper? Will he who does such things escape? Can he break a covenant and still be delivered? As I live, says the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwells who made him king, that is Babylon, whose oath he despised and whose covenant he broke, with him in the midst of Babylon he shall die. Nor will Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company do anything in the war when they heap up a siege mound and build a wall to cut off many persons. Not only did Zedekiah make Babylon angry with him, 
But Egypt never came through. Egypt had promised Jerusalem protection, but it never came. The Pharaoh was afraid of Babylon. And thus he stayed beyond the Nile. Verse 18, since he, Zedekiah, despised the oath by breaking the covenant and in fact gave his hand and still did all these things, he shall not escape. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely my oath which he despised and my covenant which he broke, I will recompense on his own head. I will spread my net over him and he shall be taken in my snare. I will bring him to Babylon and try him there for the treason which he committed against me. In a sense, Zedekiah's treaty had been with Nebuchadnezzar. But in another sense, his treaty had been with God. God takes it personal that he had violated his oath and that he had gone against the king of Babylon behind his back to court the favor of the Egyptians and that he had not accepted God's verdict. All his fugitives with all his troops shall fall by the sword And those who remain shall be scattered to every wind, and you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken. Thus says the Lord God, I will take also one of the highest branches of the high cedar and set it out. And again, with this judgment comes some hope. I will crop off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and will plant it on a high and prominent mountain. Now remember, in the parable, the great eagle took the top twig and cropped it off. But now God does the same. Nebuchadnezzar chose Jeconiah and took him back to Babylon. But God chooses to take another twig. God's choice is a younger, taller, higher, more tender twig. God will take an heir of the Davidic dynasty, a twig from the Davidic tree tree. And God will replant him on the mountains of Jerusalem. Recall that many of the Hebrew prophets foresaw the Messiah as the branch of David. In fact, this is how Isaiah 53 speaks of Jesus. He shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. Here Ezekiel says that God will plant this root on a high and prominent mountain. This twig will be planted on a prominent mountain. Now, Everest is the tallest mountain on earth in terms of altitude. But in terms of prominence, the tallest mountain is just outside the walls of Jerusalem, north of the city. It's called Mount Calvary. And it's here that God will plant His Messiah. In fact, He'll attach Him to a stake, a cross. And through his death, fruit will sprout all over the world. The lives of millions upon millions of people will be transformed. You remember Jesus said in John 12, verse 24, He said of Himself, Most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He was speaking of His own death. This was Ezekiel's message as well. Verse 23, On the mountain height of Israel, I will plant it, and I will bring forth bows and bear fruit and be a majestic cedar until it will dwell birds of every sort. In the shadows of its branches, they will dwell. And here's a foreshadowing of Matthew chapter 13. 
You, re- you remember the parable of the mustard seed? God's kingdom begins as a tiny seed, but it grows into a tree in which the birds nest. And from a human perspective, God's kingdom couldn't have been tinier, more humble, more inauspicious. It couldn't have a more insignificant beginning. An unknown carpenter from Nazareth, a ragtag bunch of fishermen. This is how the kingdom began. And yet this Jesus movement began to spread. And it continues to spread even until this day. And one day it will encompass all the nations. And the birds, the nations of the world will nest in its branches. The last 2,500 years have seen Ezekiel's prophecy come to pass. And all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Lord, have brought down the high tree and exalted the low tree, dried up the green tree, and made the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and have done it. In other words, God continues to turn the tables on human wisdom and on human power. Rome was a high tree that got cut down. Babylon was a high tree that got cut down. Whereas Jesus was a low tree that God exalted. Even today, He exalts the humble and He pummels the proud. A dry tree flourished when Jesus rose from the dead. Can't think of a more vivid example. Now remember when God found newborn Jerusalem out in that field, He said, live! He came up to her. Live, yes, live. And that's what he said to us. The world might have left you for dead, but God has found you, and he's feeding you, and he's nurturing you, and he is taking you as his bride. He has now clothed you in robes of righteousness. He's adorned you with his blessing. He's done all this for us. Now, have you been faithful? In your heart, have you been faithful to Him? Do you love Him supremely? Is your heart a loyal heart? Or is it a cheating heart?